0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Fine-Tuning the JAK-STAT Pathway in Psoriasis, Safely Targeting the Underlying Mechanisms of Disease with tic 2 Inhibition. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash cct860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Kenneth Gordon. I'm the Chair of Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Welcome to this educational activity on psoriasis. Joining me today is Dr. April Armstrong from the Kix School of Medicine at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles.
1: Hi, Ken. It's great to be here today.
0: So we all are familiar with the signs and symptoms of psoriasis. It's a chronic immune-mediated disease with skin diseases that greatly impact the quality of life of patients who suffer. It affects about 8 million, a little over 8 million Americans, uh, with a prevalence in African Americans about 1.5% compared to 3.6% in Caucasians. Interestingly, and I think more evidence is coming to the fore, that psoriasis is likely underdiagnosed in our African American patients, um, mainly because of differences in the way the skin of color looks in, clini- in the clinic. Patients with moderate severe psoriasis experience a greater negative impact on their quality of life than people with minimal disease. But I have to say that in my experience, and I'm sure with Dr. Armstrong's as well, that patients with even limited disease can have major impacts on their day-to-day lives. Patches of psoriasis present as well-demarcated red scaly plaques uh, that can be anywhere in the body, but that will vary based on the type of psoriasis present, places the psoriasis appears on the body, and the total volume of the psoriasis on a patient. We like to think of psoriasis as major subtypes. The first and by far the most common is chronic plaque psoriasis that you can see in the upper left-hand corner of this figure. That's where you see the well-demarcated red scaly plaques. Guttate psoriasis is usually viewed as small, coin-like lesions that can occur anywhere and all over the body. Oftentimes, they'll occur in crops that happen after an infection, for example. Pustular psoriasis comes in a couple of different varieties. The most common that we see is palmar plantar pustular disease, where you have pustules with or without plaque psoriasis on the palms and soles, but you can also get eruptive or major areas of pla- pustular psoriasis that show up as sterile plaques, uh, sterile pustules on erythematous bases, and that can be anywhere on the body. And finally, erythrodermic psoriasis, which is defined as greater than 80% of the body's surface area involved. This doesn't always appear to be the same as plaque psoriasis, with a deep red view and maybe finer scale than the thicker scale that you see in normal plaques of psoriasis. These patients, as long as sort of the explosive generalized pustular psoriasis patients, can be quite ill with fevers, chills, and uh, feel quite poorly. There are some special sites of particular interest in psoriasis that are often lead to specific challenges for treatment. One of those is inverse psoriasis. Psoriasis in areas that include the inguinal areas, the perineal, the general areas, and some people even include the face as places where we view as inverse psoriasis. These are characteristically well-demarcated, but the scale and the nature of the scale is a little different, with a smooth, shiny plaque as opposed to the thick uh, white scale that we see with psoriasis. Oftentimes, this is misdiagnosed as intertrogenous uh, fungal or bacterial infections, or even eczematous or contact dermatitis. Sometimes these can be complicated by excess uh, yeast agents, for example, but we have to always keep in mind the underlying pathophysiology is still psoriasis. Nail psoriasis is another area that's particularly difficult to treat, oftentimes associated with psoriatic arthritis. There are multiple different ways, uh, multiple different areas that involve psoriasis. There's matrix psoriasis that generally shows itself as pitting, and then there is psoriasis of the nail bed, where we can have onychomyc- uh, onycholysis, where you have lifting of the nail bed, subuncle hyperkeratosis, and red spots that are called salmon patches that have or also oil drop spots. All of this can lead to nail thickening, crusting under the nail, ni- nail plate crumbling, and dystrophy that can be incredibly disabling and uh, distressing to patients with nail psoriasis palmar plantar psoriasis is a particular challenge without great therapy to date. It involves the palm, palm, palms and soles with erythematous hyperkeratotic plaques that might resemble plaque psoriasis, but can also have other elements that are very, very difficult. Fissures are often painful and quite disabling. And when you think about walking on fissures of psoriasis, it can be very difficult and have major impact on work concomitant nail psoriasis is common. And it's controversial that palmar plantar pustulosis is a part of the psoriatic pathway or distinct, but it can occur with psoriasis and plaques of psoriasis on the palms and soles can also present with pustules. So sometimes it's very difficult to make these distinctions in clinical practice. The most common lesions of, of Places, locations of lesions with psoriasis um, varies and has been described in many different ways. The scalp and the elbows and the legs, the knees particularly, have been generally considered to be of particular import. But, for example, genital psoriasis is probably highly underdiagnosed, a because physicians don't like looking in those areas in the common practice, and patients don't like showing it to physicians. And so probably general psoriasis is significantly underdiagnosed. I would say in my practice, palmar plantar psoriasis is becoming more and more significant day to day in how we treat psoriasis, in, in looking at psoriasis. And when we look at patients who are overweight or have significant skin folds, we tend to see more inverse psoriasis, probably because of irritation in the skin and the Kevner phenomena causing um, increased areas of inverse psoriasis in areas where there is rubbing of the skin and chronic trauma. But it's always important to remember that psoriasis not only impacts the skin, it affects the entire patient. And there are multiple comorbid conditions that can be associated with psoriasis. The one that I worry about most actually is depression, where people with psoriasis have been having to have clinically significant depression. Many people believe this is is related to the psoriasis itself, just the presence of psoriasis on the skin, but there's an increasing body of information that looks at the inflammation from psoriasis and whether that has a direct effect on mood uh, through impact on brain functions. Psoriatic arthritis is the comorbid disease that we think of most commonly, with about 20% uh, to 30% of patients having psoriatic arthritis in those that have plaque psoriasis not always related to the severity of psoriasis. You can have people with mild psoriasis and have very, very significant psoriatic arthritis. Additionally, Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease share some of the genetic makeup of of psoriasis, and so that coexists very frequently. And what gets the most publicity, probably most recently, is cardiovascular disease, along with metabolic syndrome and diabetes, all of which are associated with psoriasis, particularly in patients with more extensive presentations of psoriasis. So there are many unmet needs still in psoriasis. Obviously, for those of us who've been working on this for the last number of decades, there's been a huge shift in the way we manage psoriasis. The advent of biologics with anti-TNFs first, and then the anti-IL-23 and 17 blockers have shown excellent safety and efficacy in the treatment of chronic plaque psoriasis. Yet, we still don't have high-level efficacy with oral medications and topical medications that allow us to personalize the treatment to the patient's wishes and what we need to use, as well as treating the issues associated with disease progression and and comorbid disease. The idea that we have an understanding the pathophysiologic pathways in psoriasis, which have led us to biologic development, also can lead us to more effective oral medications for the treatment of psoriasis. And one of those drivers for the inflammatory pathways in psoriasis is the JAK-STAT pathway. And for a greater description of that, I'm going to leave you to my colleague, Dr. Armstrong.
1: Thank you, Dr. Gordon, for that excellent discussion of psoriasis presentation, epidemiology, as well as comorbidities. As you have said, that it is important that we personalize our treatment for our patients, and therefore having greater treatment is something that we all look forward to, to better able to care for our patients with psoriasis. So perhaps here, the kind of storyline starts with, uh, let's have a deeper understanding of the intracellular players that are important in psoriasis pathogenesis. So one of these key pathways uh, by which psoriasis pathogenesis mediates is the JAK-STAT pathway. It is important to first recognize that this pathway is not unique to psoriasis, but the JAK-STAT pathway is also used in a number of other uh, metabolic uh, pathways. So first of all, uh, as you can see on this uh, slide, in terms of the intracellular JAK-STAT pathway, this particular pathway is first activated by the binding of certain types of cytokines to the receptor. This binding then causes a conformational change in the receptor itself. And that helps to recruit the JAKs to the receptor. So JAKs work on the inside of the cell. So it's in the uh, intracellular uh, surface or area of the receptor. And once bound to the receptor after the activation, they actually phosphorylate. The JAKs phosphorylate the receptors, and they create these docking sites for stat molecules to dock. The stat molecules would dock there, and the JAKs would also then phosphorylate the stat molecules. Once phosphorylated, these stats uh, can then uh, essentially dimerize, and then they can go to the nucleus. There, they act as transcription factors and then turn on a number of inflammatory pathways, uh, the gene transcription for those in order to initiate the inflammatory cascade for psoriasis. And here, we can take a look at uh, the various cytokine receptor Combinations and how these combinations are associated with the different JAK pairings. So, first of all, when we are thinking about the JAK STAT pathway, as I said before, only certain types of cytokines, when they bind to certain types of receptors, uh, they are associated then with certain types of JAK pairings. When we think about the JAK family, there are four main members of the JAK family, and they are JAK 1, 2, 3, and TIC2. And in this family, typically two members work together. So for example, TIC2 can partner with Jack one for certain types of intracellular uh, uh, transduction of the signals, or for example, Jack one can pair with Jack 2 So when you look at this particular slide, you will see that different pairings are associated with different types of cytokines. And this is important because it is through this, these different types of combinations how our body then can then relay the different messages uh, in order to have a number of downstream uh, actions. So on the next slide here, uh, we are looking at an overview of the JAK inhibition. So it's important to know that in psoriasis, as well as in a number of other inflammatory skin diseases, there is an inappropriate uh, hyperactivity of uh, the uh, JAK activity, and most of it is because there is an inappropriately elevated levels of cytokines. And so in this particular strategy of inhibition, we are really targeting inhibiting the intracellular uh, aspect. And here the targets are our JAKs, and the different inhibitors can inhibit either JAK1, for example, or it can inhibit tic 2 And when we're looking at the next slide, we are looking at the development of tic 2 as one of the key targets for uh, targeting in terms of psoriasis pathogenesis. And the reason for this is that tic 2 is involved not only in the initiation of the psoriasis cascade, and that is activation of the myeloid dendritic cells. But also TIG2 is important for the intracellular transmission of the signals as a result of the IL-12 or IL-23 binding. We know that IL-23 is critical for the Th17 pathway, and therefore inhibiting that particular signaling pathway that is pathologically elevated in patients with psoriasis is something that is uh, worth pursuing. So when we're thinking about TIC 2 selective inhibitors, we are really thinking about not only controlling the Uh, quote-unquote, the upstream in terms of the uh, activation of the myeloid dendritic cells, but also dampening the inflammatory response uh, downstream as well. Now, let's talk about some of the structural differences between the JAK family. So I spoke about the JAK family having the JAK1, 2, 3, as well as tic 2 Now, when we're looking at this family of molecules, Um, they have both a regulatory domain, uh, which is depicted on the left-hand side, as well as a catalytic domain, which is depicted in the gray color on the right-hand side. So let's talk about the catalytic domain first. And oftentimes this can be considered almost um, like a family, like their the fam- family's last name, for example. It's relatively conserved across the family members, for example, and especially the catalytic site where the ATP binds, uh, that tends to be a favorite site for inhibition. And the reason for this is that you are going right to the heart of the matter. You're inhibiting where uh, the, uh, the ATP would otherwise bind. The trouble with that is that oftentimes when the site is conserved, so it's very similar across the different family members, your binding can potentially affect the actions of other types of JAKs as well. For example, we have uh, medications that may be targeted towards JAK1, but also has some cross-reactivity against JAK2 or 3 And that can result uh, in some of the untoward uh, side effects that we see. When we're targeting the regulatory domain, uh, which is the domain depicted on the left side, the regulatory domains tend to be more unique uh, among the different jacks. And this is, uh, has been, there's an analogy that this may be like the first name of the, of the member of the family. And because it, this is more unique, when you are targeting the regulatory domain, you, uh, it essentially causes a conformational shift Uh, in the uh, catalytic domain. So even though you're not binding to the catalytic domain directly, the inhibitor can bind, for example, to the regulatory domain on the left-hand side. In the case of TIC2 into this uh, pink area, that will cause a conformational change on the right-hand side, the catalytic domain, and therefore exert its therapeutic effect. So what are the key advantages of this particular type of inhibition, where you're inhibiting the regulatory domain and having that lead to a, lead to a conformational change. This is considered what's considered allosteric inhibition. And the key advantages is that it's highly specific. Um, the inhibitor, therefore is very specific for tick2 and, uh, and uh, does not tend to bind the other family members uh, of the JAK family. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we see a modulation of the activity instead of complete elimination of, the, of a particular kinase activity. And this is important because we have these kinases for other normal functions uh, in the body as well. And how do we know that tick 2 allosteric inhibition uh, can be quite specific? Well, we have a molecule uh, as a field that was developed called ducravacitinib. And ducravacitinib targets specifically uh, TIC 2 and it's a TIC 2 inhibitor. So in this particular graph, what we're seeing is the level of inhibitory activity on the different JAKs as well as TIC 2 which is a member of the JAK family. So as you can see here, there are uh, different medications that have different effects on JAK1, uh, 2, um, activities. And, and the darker, uh, darker gray bars represent JAK1-3 activity. Uh, we mainly want to avoid the JAK2-2 2, 2 activity because this is really talking about our uh, blood cell lines. So we want to see the lighter gray bar uh, as low as possible. And for psoriasis, what we care a lot is about the TIK2 activity inhibition. So if you go on to the right-hand side, you see that for ducravacitinib, there's very little JAK1-3 or JAK2-2 activity, uh, and very specifically, its activity is against tig 2 So this really speaks to the specificity of this particular inhibition. Now, in the next slide, we're looking at some of the molecular as well as the clinical effects of selective tig 2 inhibition with ducravacitinib. So here we're looking at ducravacitinib versus placebo in terms of its effects on total cholesterol as well as total triglyceride. So as you can see, the color bars uh, look pretty much identical to the placebo. And this tells us that ducravacitinib has very little effect uh, or perturbation on the total cholesterol and total triglyceride. And this is important because the lipids are typically mediated by JAK1 and JAK2 activity. And this shows how selective tig 2 inhibitor ducravacinib is for tig 2 and therefore does not seem to disturb much of the normal physiology that's mediated through JAK1 and JAK2. Now, when we're thinking about TIC2 and specifically the cytokine signaling it uh, is associated with, we typically think of three different types of cytokines. So first, as I alluded to earlier, the IL-23 is very important in psoriasis pathogenesis. And it's the, when, when IL-23 binds to its receptor, the TIC2 and JAK2 is the pairing that's responsible for carrying that signal, signal intracellularly. Second is IL-12. IL-12 also plays a role in terms psoriasis pathogenesis. And to carry that signal forward intracellularly, we also have the TIC2-JAC2 pairing that's responsible for the transduction of that particular signal intracellularly. And then finally, the type 1 interferon. And those are the interferons that are important in the initiation of psoriasis. So here we're talking about activation of uh, myeloid dendritic cells, and here for the transmission of type one interferon, and that's interferon alpha and beta, for that signal transduction, then TIC two and JAK one pairing is important in that. Now, here is a table that kind of summarizes some of the uh, effects of the different JAK inhibitions and the different immune systems, uh, or the different system in the body aside from immune systems that can affect. And uh, before I turn it to uh, Dr. Gordon to uh, get his take on on this particular graph, I just wanted to highlight, for example, in the Jack 2 column here, Jack 2 is used is. Um, essentially involve pretty ubiquitously uh, in the different uh, uh, in in the different systems we have And the part that we really want to avoid is where we are showing uh, the checkbox of Jack 2 next to the blood cell development and so this is something we want to uh, avoid hitting Jack2 because we don't want to we don't want the inhibition to affect our red blood cells, white blood cells or platelet production. So Dr. Gordon, do you have any thoughts on on this the, this table?
0: Yeah, well, I think that, it shows pretty clearly that psoriasis being an inflammatory disease, you would expect that the immune system be critical in treating it. And any downstream effects that might be negative uh, relate to the immune system would be expected and and sort of necessary in any way we treat psoriasis. And we we see that today across everything we use to treat psoriasis. It's the other areas, it's the multi-organ toxicities that I think we have to be always be cognizant of. And I agree with you that the blood cell development and the discreation associated with JAK2 inhibition are the things we sort of worry about the most um, when treating with other members uh, of JAK inhib. when we talk about JAK inhibition. Um, But I think things like lipid metabolism, uh, especially in patients with psoriasis who often have metabolic syndrome and are obese, um, I think looking at alterations of lipid metabolism is extremely important. So I think all these areas have specific relevance to psoriasis Um, but it's that immune mediation that is critical for psoriasis as that's treating the disease directly.
1: I think that's really well said, Dr. Gordon. Um, I think that having uh, this table also as a sort of overview of the uh, predominant role these different JAKs are are affecting really highlights some of the specificity of the TIC2 inhibition. Now, I'm going to turn the floor back to you.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Armstrong. That was a fantastic description of a very complex topic um, that you made both very clear uh, and understandable, which is not always easy to do when talking about uh, the Jack family and the distinctions between the members of the Jack family. So as we move into understanding a bit about the Jack family, the specific role of tick, we need to think about how can we practically investigate how we're going to use tick inhibition um, in treating our patients with uh, psoriasis. And so to do that, we always like to bring in a patient case, and it always helps to visualize and understand what's going on when put in the context of a case. And so we'll be thinking about Bree, who's going to be our, our friend for the remainder of this, uh, this discussion. Uh, Brie's a 25-year-old woman. She has multiple thick, scaly erythematous plaques with silvery scales. She has classic plaque psoriasis that we could, most of us can diagnose from across the room. She's had rashes in the past, but nothing like she's seeing right now. And so the first thing we have to think about when we see a patient like Bree is to say, what's the impact of the disease on this young woman? Now, classically, psoriasis has been thought of as mild, moderate, and severe, and we look at those in the context of body surface area with severe disease being greater than 10% body surface area and not thinking so much of the impact of lesser body surface areas of involvement or in special areas. So in particular, I think 10% is an important number to keep in mind because that's really what's been shown to be associated with things like cardiovascular comorbidities, but I think it underestimates the real role psoriasis can have and the impact psoriasis can have even at lesser body surface areas. So, the International Psoriasis Council uh, did a Delphi Consensus uh, Plan, which is just a way to get expert opinion to say, what does moderate and severe and mild psoriasis really mean? And it came up with this uh, perspective that psoriasis patients should be classified as either candidates for topical therapy or candidates for systemic therapy. The latter are patients who meet at least one of the following criteria a body surface area over greater than 10%, and that's basically because patients with uh, psoriasis over 10%, by, uh, the efficacy of topicals goes way down. I think a lot of that is because of adherence to treatment, disease involving special areas that might be very, very difficult to treat topically, and then finally finally failure of topical therapy. And that failure can be for any number of reasons, but the fact is even people with less body surface area involved can have a major impact on their lives and will all deserve to have treatment even if topical therapy isn't working for them. So it's always good to have some kind of sense of when you see a patient, when you're in front of the patient, what are you thinking about uh, when you see them? And this is what I do and I go through with the residents in my program all the time. So the patient has psoriasis. We make that diagnosis from across the room most of the time. Sometimes it's a little tougher, but usually we can make that diagnosis. Um, as my residents say, that's sometimes it's the only diagnosis I'm capable of making. Um, and then you go and, say, differentiate between people who have limited disease or disease that's amenable to topical therapy, or those people who need more aggressive treatment, who need systemic therapy. And then we fall into those different categories that the International Psoriasis Council um, discussed. That's the first thought process that goes into mind when I'm talking to a patient with psoriasis. I don't know how you think about that, Dr. Armstrong, when you're seeing a patient.
1: Yes, um, I agree with you, Ken. I think that for me, um, probably the first thing is thinking about the uh, whether there's a joint involvement is very important to me. Um, so if they have signs and symptoms of psoriatic arthritis, then I may reach for a systemic therapy, um, even if they have a little body surface area. And then I would go with the IPC, the new definition, uh, with regards to the uh, consideration of if they didn't have joint disease, then I would go with I- IPC's consideration of um, of candidates who would be suitable for systemic therapy, as you have discussed earlier, and use that as a guidance for for selecting uh, a systemic therapy.
0: Yeah, I agree totally. And, and I think this is the single greatest, along with psoriatic arthritis, as you mentioned, greatest um, decision that impacts sort of the direction of the visit when we're seeing patients and how we present different medications to patients um, as we um, try to Uh, present things so they can make decisions for themselves as to what's the best treatment path for them. So going back to Bree, um, so Bree has plaques over her elbows, thighs, her scalp, uh, and some on her trunk, uh, which leaves about 15% body surface area involved. If you're a physician, we always think about the palm being approximately 1% of the body surface area. It's pretty rough estimate, but it's helpful. And so she'll have about 15%. So this is something where um, she has pretty significant disease, 15%, 15 palms of psoriasis on the body is uh, quite a bit. And so she is treatment naive. That means she hasn't gotten therapy before systemically, um, but it is really having an impact on her quality of life. She's a young woman um, going out into the world and it's having major impact on her day-to-day uh, thoughts and, and about herself and about her, her ability to do her activities of daily living, um, both from a physical and emotional sense. And so we uh, need to go and we need to choose a systemic therapy based on both the IPC uh, definitions, but also based on the impact the disease is having on Brie. And then we go to the factors that uh, we use when selecting a therapy. And I think I want to start right at the top. We look at skin efficacy as a significant issue, and, and part of that is if you think about efficacy being, what's the likelihood a given treatment's gonna work for the patient? It's not you know, overlooking at populations and the number needed to treat, but in that given patient in front of us, what is the likelihood that's gonna work? And that's where we talk about POSI 75, meaning that there's a percentage of patients who will reach a POSI 75. What's the predictive value? The same thing can be said for efficacy in psoriatic arthritis, and that patient who has psoriatic arthritis, what's the likelihood of this drug working for them? Safety, obviously, is always a major uh, factor in making decisions. Uh, without a good safety record, um, it's very difficult to choose a significant an option. Luckily, for most of our therapies that we, work, we use typically in psoriasis therapy, um, we have a good safety uh, Regimen, a sa- good safety record. That's why we don't use cyclosporine nearly as much as we once did. Convenience is important. Patients being adherent to uh, adherent to the therapy. If you don't take the therapy, it ain't going to work. Cost to the patient is extremely important. Uh, I think there's we can consider the cost to the patient, but also societal cost. How much or what we are we using going to impact our ability to get medications in the future. Previous treatment responses, looking how patients have done is important. Should we go back to a prior therapy? Should we try something new? What mechanism should we use? Comorbidities is something that I think is uh, something we don't always consider, and I think the most important thing to remember is, does the patient have a sort of critical mass of psoriasis that drives us to say, you really need to be treated rather than be able to go slowly and do you have to be clear sooner than later? And finally, patient preference. Again, another area that I think we sometimes underestimate. I was at a meeting recently where a very, very uh, well-known and very, very smart colleague said that she really tries to help patients along in making decisions and presents things that she thinks are best for the patient. I try to take the um, different tactics and say, let me put everything out there and get the patient preference uh, because sometimes what the patient, if the patient feels that they have an element of Um, decision-making in the process, they're more likely to be adherent with the therapy over time. Dr. Armstrong, what do you think are the areas that you emphasize when having a visit with the patient within this this model?
1: Yeah, I think for me, um, one of the key things uh, uh, is uh, safety for for our patients. I think our patients uh, risk tolerance uh, may be different from my risk tolerance. And I think it's very important that we have a common understanding of of that mutually. uh, Because if one of us, uh, if we're we're off kilter or if we're not aligned, then I know the patient is not going to continue his or her medication in the future. So I think discussion of safety is very important. And then um, we do have a lot of options in terms of efficacious therapies for our patients, especially in the biologic realm. Um, and for me, conveying that information uh, to the patient so that they understand what the likelihood of their um, success with the, with the therapy uh, is, is another aspect that I focused on.
0: Great, thank you. I think these are all really important considerations. The other issues associated with um, psoriasis and how we choose therapy is based on the areas that are involved, especially when we start using topical therapies or even targeted phototherapy. Now, when looking at localized psoriasis, we always have to think about what are the mainstays of therapy. And topical corticosteroids have been the mainstay for decades for our treatment. They're the most effective um, and also the most commonly used and, and, to be honest, least expensive in the United States. In the scalp, for example, um, using solutions uh, or lotions or foam vehicles um, can be very, very helpful. Now, usually to get benefit in the scalp, we'll use class one or class two uh, topical corticosteroids, and that's usually very well tolerated in the scalp. Going down in the body or extremities, um, using systemics, uh, using uh, topicals including uh, class, one or class two topical corticosteroids is very helpful. Usually you want to limit the length of time you use these medications, uh, but you can use them in combination with other things like vitamin D analogs or vitamin A analogs that can be very helpful. Sometimes on the body in particular, localized phototherapy can be helpful or even generalized phototherapy that can be used as well, which is usually a little bit more um, available. Interdrogen psoriasis is a little more difficult. The skin's thinner, you have to be more careful about what you're using in those areas. So we use lower potency topical corticosteroids, vitamin D derivatives, or topical urine inhibitors like tacrolimus or macrolimus, and always have some limitation on what we can use in those areas. Luckily, we might be getting some new topical therapies over the next uh, year or so that might be helpful in having sort of single agents that we can use for topical therapy. When it comes to systemic therapies, between biologics and small molecules, we have a plethora of options, as can be shown by the fact that, what, 80% of all TV commercials are now psoriasis commercials? Um, But that means that we have lots of agents, and it's it's a wonderful situation to be in. You have three basic classes of biologics. You have anti-TNFs, anti-IL-17s, and anti-IL-23s, and I tend to think of these as classes, not always as individual drugs. They have different level of efficacy, with the TNFs being extremely effective for psoriatic arthritis and maybe slightly less effective for cutaneous psoriasis. The anti-IL-23 is having great impact on psoriasis, maybe potentially a little less on psoriatic arthritis. And the IL- anti-IL-17 sort of hitting the sweet spot between the two and um, getting effect of both arthritis and psoriasis. As for oral medications, we have had less use of methotrexate and cyclosporine and acetretin over time. The oral medication is used most frequently is a premolast, which is a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor uh, and that is used very, very commonly uh, for psoriasis as well, but does have some limitations. The limitations of biologics um, are pretty evident. Um, some patients don't respond. Now, the efficacy is quite high, but there are still patients who don't respond But some of those patients have cycled through biologics and have lost effect over time uh, because of immunogenicity or because um, they have just lost response related to some other reason for uh, breaking down antibody or eliminating the drug quicker. Uh, Some patients uh, have problems with the medication being administered parenterally, either IV or or more often subcutaneously. People don't always love taking shots. And then finally, there is treatment-related expenses. Biologics, by and large, are extremely expensive. And even though there might be ways to get the medications to patients in the United States at a way that is at a slight discount, um, there's no such thing as free biologics. There's always an expense associated with them. So Tic-2 inhibitors um, are an area where we might actually have some ability to treat psoriasis. And actually gained some responses to both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So far, there have been three uh, medications that have been developed for, psoriatic, for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis by blocking TIC2. One is Decravicitinib, which is a drug that blocks TIC2 by allosteric inhibition, and that has completed both phase three in psori- for plaque psoriasis and is in phase three development for psoriatic arthritis. On the other hand, there were two other TIC2 inhibitors that both worked by blocking the catalytic domain that have not gone on to have further study at this time. And so to date, for TIC2 inhibition, we really have to cravacitinib as our primary player um, in trying to treat through this mechanism. And to look at that data, I'm gonna turn it back to Dr. Armstrong.
1: Thank you, Dr. Gordon. Now we're going to take a deep dive into the ducravosinib efficacy as well as safety data. And at the end of this efficacy data, I'm going to ask Dr. Gordon about his sort of overall impression uh, of what I presented. Uh, so we'll start with the uh, study design. So the POETIC PSO1 and PSO2—they're the names for the phase three pivotal studies uh, for ducravosinib, our TIC2 inhibitor uh, that we're talking about. Um, The two studies are identically designed up till week 24, and specifically, there are three arms, placebo, ducravacitinib, and an active comparator arm of apremilast. Patients are randomized into one of the three arms, and then at week 16, placebo patients are then transitioned to ducravacitinib. So let's take a look at the primary outcomes. So the primary outcomes are uh, of two. One is posi-75 and the other one is SPGA 0 or 1. So here, we're taking a look at proportion of patients that have achieved posi-75 by week 16, and that's our primary endpoint. Uh, Ducravacitinib, about 58% of patients achieved in PSO1 study um, uh, posi-75, or at least 75% improvement in their posi score since the baseline evaluation compared to about a third of the patients, about 35% patients on a premolast and compared to 12% in the placebo group. So as you can see here, ducravacitinib at week 16 is superior to premolas as well as placebo. And then when we follow those lines out to week 24, we see a persistence of the effect. Um, In PSO1, in fact, we see the rates up to 70% of patients uh, achieving posi-75 for ducravacitinib. Similar results for posi-75 was also seen in PSO2 study. Now let's take a look at the other co-primary endpoint that's SPGA 0 or 1 or clear or almost clear. And here the similar comparisons, the similar trends also have hold, have held here. What we see here is that 53% of the patients onto Kravacitnib achieved clear or almost clear by week 16 compared to about 33% of the patients and 7% in the placebo group. So here again, ducravacitinib on this primary endpoint is superior to apremilast as well as uh, superior to placebo group. Now, when we are looking at the scalp data, so now we're going to take a look at scalp psoriasis data. We know uh, from Dr. Gordon's talk earlier that scalp is uh, something that when you have scalp psoriasis, it can have a disproportionate impact on the patient's quality of life. Here we're looking at proportion patients who achieve clear or almost clear uh, on these uh, three in these three different arms by week 16. And what was noted here, for example, is that 70% of the patients on cravacitinib would achieve clear or almost clear by week 16 compared to nearly 40% of the patients in the Premolas group and 17% of the patients in the placebo group. And then we follow these patients out to 24 weeks, we see the persistence of effect uh, for ducravacitinib uh, as well as premolas, but at differentiated rates as we see here. What about quality of life? Here we're looking at dermatology life quality index 0 or 1, which means that the skin disease has a little or no impact on the patient's quality of life. So here, the higher the percentage, the better a medication is. And what we see in PSL1 study, for example, by week 16, 41% of the patients felt that their psoriasis no longer had a significant impact on their quality of life compared to 28% of patients in the apremilas group. And what we see over time is that uh, that rate continues to go up, uh, suggesting a continuous improvement in terms of quality of life for our patients um, on ducravacitinib. Next, we are looking at a data that was was presented at the American Academy of Dermatology meeting uh, in 2022. And this is looking at patients who had inadequate response to premolast at week 24. So you may recall in the PSO1 study, uh, a premolast arm, if a patient is in the premolast arm, at week 24, if they didn't achieve posi-50, then they were switched um, to ducravacitinib. Uh, to and what we see here is that in the uh, apremolase failure group, uh, when they are switched to ducravacitinib, and if you follow them out to 52 weeks on the left-hand side panel, we see that about 46% of the patients would then achieve posi-75. So here we're talking about a difficult-to-treat patient population who have not responded to apremilast, what happens if you switch them to ducravacitinib? As we can see here, we do gain efficacy in these patients with ducravacitinib after the switch. And I think this data can be quite informative when we're thinking about patients uh, on oral therapy and specifically on apremilast, and then uh, to think about uh, what proportion of them would respond to ducravacitinib over time. So left-hand side panel shows POSI 75, right-hand side shows SPGA 0 or 1. As you can see here, we do see response for that clinical outcome as well. And now we talked up till now, uh, mostly about the week 24 data. And when we go to our uh, primary studies and really follow the entire cohort over time who had been treated with Ducravacitinib to week 52, one year uh, period of time, what we see is that overall good maintenance of the uh, clinical response that was achieved at earlier points uh, throughout one year period of time. And here on the left-hand side, we see different lines representing posi-75, 90, and 100. And on the right-hand side, showing uh, clear or almost clear, or uh, as well as a complete clearance on the right-hand side. So I'm going to pause here and uh, ask Dr. Gordon about his overall impression of the efficacy data for ducravacinib.
0: Well, I think the efficacy data, especially in a head-to-head comparison with the premlast, is pretty clear. Um, You have high-level efficacy, probably the highest we've seen with any oral medication, short of cyclosporine, uh, which is limited, obviously, in the length of time we can use and the safety profile. And so I think as we've been, the biggest limitation that I've seen in oral medication over time, particularly with the premlast, is efficacy. And so since you have something that's predictably uh, has significant efficacy in you know, probably almost twice the frequency, maybe not quite but twice, but close to it, the frequency of a premalast, I think it's a major addition to the armamentarium uh, because we're able to you know, tell patients that, we'll try an oral medication if that's what you want, and we actually have something that can pretty predictably get um, high-level responses.
1: Very well said, Dr. Gordon. And with that, we're going to dive straight into the safety summary and safety information. We talked earlier about the mechanism of inhibition of TIC2, and let's see if the clinical results bear out some of our hypothesis. So here we are looking at the safety summary for the placebo control period from that's from week zero to week 16. So here we have a placebo group, so it it can be quite informative. And what is shown here is that overall, the rates were pretty similar between the two groups with regards to adverse events. When we look at tolerability issues the lower part of the table, we see that ducravacitinib, for example, is quite well tolerated. Uh, Much of the tolerability events are very similar to placebo and certainly numerically lower rates in terms of diarrhea or nausea as compared to the premolast comparison arm. So the next slide shows the summary data from week 0 to week 52. As you may recall, starting week 16, we sort of lose the placebo group because the placebo patients are then transitioned to ducravacitinib. But overall, what we see here um, is that, again, the same uh, safety profile that I just talked about in terms of week 0 to 16, uh, we see uh, the similar safety profile in the week 0 to 52 data. Again, overall, very well tolerated, and uh, the, uh, the rates of uh, adverse events were very similar uh, among the different groups. Now. We know uh, while tic 2 is technically a part of the JAK family, um, it is important to look at some of the events of interest that have been discussed with the uh, JAK1, 2, or 3 inhibitors and to look at to see if we see that with the tic 2 inhibition with Ducravacinib. Overall, what we see is that we do not see uh, a signal in terms of internal malignancy or skin cancer. And then also, we uh, do not see a signal in terms of serious uh, infections or or MACE events, uh, major cardiovascular uh, events. And uh, of note, we do see a slightly increased herpes zoster um, uh, infection rates most of those are localized and uh, and did not uh, and resolve with treatment and didn't necessitate the discontinuation of ducravacitinib. We also see slight increase in some of the acne or folliculitis rates uh, with ducravacitinib. Uh, overall, again, uh, can be managed and uh, did not uh, lead to the discontinuation of ducravacitinib. Uh, there were two cases of. Um, of uh, a VTE with the ducravacitinib arm. Uh, one was with a patient who had uh, a venous cannula, uh, essentially a peripheral IV line that was placed, and that IV line uh, was clogged. And then the other was in the patient who had a primary uh, aortic dissection, was later on surgery, found to have uh, pulmonary embolism. However, that patient uh, had recovered from uh, these events and work was continued uh, on to in the long-term extension study, and is still uh, currently doing well. So overall, uh, no significantly increased uh, signal for VTE uh, from my perspective either. So next, uh, we are going to take a look at some of the labels. Uh, these are the package inserts for the approved JAK uh, inhibitors, uh, and uh, as you can see, when when the uh, when the medication targets uh, Jack 1, 2, or 3, uh, overall, what we see in terms of the package insert, there are different recommendations with regards to uh, initiation of medication or continuation of medication around some of the hematologic parameters or uh, uh, or uh, liver enzyme parameters or lipids. And most of this is derived actually from the rheumatoid arthritis patient population, where they have seen some perturbations in some of these parameters. Um, and therefore, uh, these recommendations are applied uh, across the different uh, JAK families. Let's take a look at with regards to the laboratory uh, data for Ducravacitinib. So here you see cholesterol, creatinine phosphokinase, neutrophils, as well as platelets. And I would challenge you if you didn't read the legend here of which what um, the different color lines represented, you can probably see that it is very similar in terms of laboratory parameters, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, placebo, apremilast, or ducravacitinib, really showing the lack of effect on ducravacitinib on the laboratory parameters that we care about. And I think that's an important uh, point to note in terms of the safety for ducravacitinib. Uh, In addition to psoriasis, ducravacitinib is also being evaluated in a number of other uh, conditions such as psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, as well as lupus. And here is the study design for the ongoing phase 3 a psoriatic arthritis study, which uh, I think we're all very excited to, to see in the future. Uh, and the reason for that is that the phase 2 study, which is shown on the left-hand side, um, have shown a response of ducravacitinib in the joint signs as well as symptoms. And now, uh, when we're looking at uh, TIC2 as a target for inhibition, here is a slide showing a number of different molecules uh, that are under development for TIC2 inhibition. As you can see, uh, there are three others that also target the allosteric domain, really showing that that's a good, uh, good part of the protein to uh, to target with regards to, uh, to uh, with regards to drug development. So I think the future of TIC2 as a whole class uh, looks pretty bright with more players uh, potentially coming down on the pipeline. Now let's get back to our patient, Bree, that uh, Dr. Gordon had talked about before. So with this patient, um, she was started on a premolast. Um, but she had experienced some GI symptoms, specifically nausea as well as diarrhea. And I'm very interested in see Dr. Gordon's uh, input on this uh, patient. Can um, any thoughts on how long you would continue Breon trying a premolase before thinking about switching her on on to different therapies?
0: Well, you know the the common teaching is that, Within two to four weeks, most of the side effects, tolerability side effects of primalast will improve, Um, but there clearly are patients who have persistent issues. So I usually tell a patient if um, you're going on four weeks and still having persistent issues that make an impact on your life, um, it's time to go somewhere else. And one of the things I think we need to figure out is how long do we have to wait before we see enough efficacy to determine that it's time to change meds. Uh, and that's one piece of information that we don't have with the Premolast. Though it's my suspicion if we have people who are showing moderate responses at you know six to eight weeks, you might want to go on. People who aren't showing any good response by that time, it's, it's time to change at that point as well. So I usually give it um, a few weeks, see how those uh, tolerability side effects improve, and then move onward after that.
1: Great points. Um, I also think uh, getting back to the tolerability issue, sometimes I I do encourage my patients to stay on the drug for a little bit longer to see if their tolerability issues uh, discontinue. But as we know, most of our patients, it's hard for them to live with nausea and diarrhea for, for a prolonged period of time. So understandably, sometimes I find that they would self-discontinue the medication uh, much at a much shorter time period than I would recommend them to potentially continue trying to see if some of the, these side effects go away. So so what if uh, 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 the Brie, if we, we talked about Brie, who's 25 years old. Um, but it's in, important to know, what if Brie we were you know, uh, slightly different? What if we were talking about a woman who is 65 years old, and what if Brie has psoriatic arthritis and these other comorbidities uh, as something for us to think about? Because in real life, we see patients from really diverse uh, backgrounds. So taking that uh, into consideration, uh, I just wanted to ask Dr. Gordon, uh, if Brie we were a 65 year old um, woman, uh, what would you what would you do differently or the same?
0: I, I think particularly, um, age is sort of a relative thing uh, with uh, therapy for psoriasis because the side effects or the infectious concerns you have are escalated, but they're escalating in pretty much everything we use. Um, and when you look at a medication, Uh, in the oral medications, um, we feel very comfortable using a premalast because we don't really see um, significant increases in infectious risk, for example. But if you look at the head-to-head comparison between Ducravisitinib and a apremalast, they seem to be about the same. And so I think that um, you can feel comfortable using either of these agents uh, in patients who are over 65. Uh, Likewise, I think the psoriatic arthritis data leads you to think either in a biologic, Um, but also into some of the oral agents. Importantly, um, I think the severity of psoriatic arthritis comes into play. If you have uh, no real, you know, the 10 swollen, tender joints is different from a patient who has uh, a modest amount of joint stiffness in the morning. Uh, And so I think that makes a difference uh, in terms of what you would choose. But in general, I think having data that supports use in psoriatic arthritis is important as well. The one I think is most important uh, is the difficult to treat areas, particularly the palms and soles, where I think um, our experience suggests that small molecules might do a little better than biologics and probably it's a delivery issue. Um, So I think that that's something we need to keep in mind if she had significant amounts uh, on her palms and soles and driving you towards towards using an oral small molecule.
1: Those are all great points, and I think that uh, I agree with you uh, in that when we're looking at our, our current oral therapy, specifically targeted small molecules, I think uh, the the age of the patient. Uh, I think I would consider pramlast or ertavirsin being both uh, appropriate for for those with older in older patient populations. So I think I'm going to turn the floor back to you, Ken. Um, on to really think about where tick two inhibitors uh, fit into our treatment algorithm.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Armstrong. I appreciate and I appreciate that amazing presentation of a just tremendous amount of data, um, very very clearly, and, and it's really easy to understand. Um, so when you put all of this together, we think about where we consider using tick two inhibition. Um, we always look at. Uh, systemic agents as a whole, um, we look at the oral medications specifically as a class. Um, the traditional ones, um, significant end organ toxicity and multi organ toxicities that they really have limited their use over time. A uh, promise may be maybe more tolerable uh, ish, tolerability issues rather than safety. The jacks in general, the classic jacks that block the binding sites um, and are competitive inhibitors. Uh, we have significant impact uh, because of cross-reactivity, uh, infections, thrombosis has come up, and obviously the blood uh, test changes that we all uh, have to follow when we're using the classic JAK inhibitors. Um, the allosteric inhibition used by decravacitinib might be significantly uh, an advantage because it doesn't have that cross-reactivity uh, with the binding sites, and therefore you can have a more specific um, medication for the treatment of a disease like psoriasis, when thinking about it versus a premelast, so are the oral medications approved for psoriasis, again the efficacy is going to be greater, and that's been demonstrated head to head. Tolerability will also be significantly greater. We think, at least in, particularly in the early portions of therapy, um, because of the diarrhea and nausea and and headache associated with the premolast. What's really important, I think, in the head-to-head trials, though, is that the safety, which we feel very comfortable with the premolast in terms of uh, safety with infection or various other uh, mechanisms and blood tests as well, um, seems to be almost identical between decravacitinib and a premolast. and that gives me a lot of sense of comfort um, using decravacitinib because I feel very comfortable from a safety perspective with a premolast. and I think it's important to compare these things head-to-head. Um, so for moderate severe psoriasis overall, I think safety tolerability, its efficacy, um, all are big, play big roles. Taking a pill once a day is something that is, I think, tolerable to most patients. The impact on comorbidities, we are hopeful that we'll see things can persist in psoriatic arthritis. The inflammatory bowel disease data might be very, very significant. And so we're, we believe that decravisydenib um, is going to ma- be a major advance. Um, with the, in the treatment of uh, plaque psoriasis. So to conclude, uh, we've looked at our understanding of the epidemiology and the pathogenesis of psoriasis and how some agents can impact safety and efficacy, but um, we need to look at how these things impact our patients uh, going forward as we sit in front of them and, and talk to them. There's still a significant unmet need um, which, for which oral agents um, that have safety and efficacy are um, still sought after and highly significant will be used in the clinic. TIC2, we've seen, regulates immune functions uh, by blocking IL-23 in particular, but also IL-12 and type 1 interferons. Um, it's now been successfully targeted in psoriasis uh, at a late stage of development uh, with the cravisitinum And the data really does confirm what we are hoping for, for the treatment of psoriasis. So as I said, we have an unmet need and conventional therapies haven't been successful. A promise is a useful agent that we do use very frequently in psoriasis. But there's still an unmet need for a high-level efficacy. And so I'd like to thank Dr. Armstrong for all of her insightful comments in, in today's uh, seminar. Um, it's always a pleasure to have a chance to work with you, April. And I think uh, it's been great to have a chance to hear your perspective on um, on medications blocking TIC-2 and its impact on psoriasis.
1: Thank you, Kim, for a for very stimulating and engaging conversation today.
0: And uh, thank you very much, and I hope you've all enjoyed our seminar on uh, the impact of TIC-2 and the treatment of psoriasis. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash cct860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb.